the thing that a lot of people say is, well, you know, aren't CBCs basically, you know, what, what school was before in person, right? Um, and in some ways it is, except it's, it's bringing that online. So it's kind of taking the best parts of the internet and the scale that the internet offers, plus the magic that happens when people get together in person and learn together and bringing that together online. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 155 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited to be joined by Wes Kao, the co-founder of Maven, the first course platform focused specifically on cohort-based courses. Wes came up with the concept of cohort-based courses while she was working with Seth Godin, and together they launched the Alt-MBA, which was one of the very first cohort-based courses of this kind on the internet. And during this conversation, you will learn how Wes ended up working with Seth in the first place, the problem with the current generation of massively open online courses or MOOCs as they're known, and how running your own course through a cohort helps you boost your revenue and actually help your course uh, attendees, your course takers to learn more, engage, and actually get a benefit out of taking those courses. We also talked about the future of education and how cohort-based courses can actually help mainstream education as we all go uh, and turn more towards the remote learning uh, style. But Uh, Before we jump into all of that, you guys, this was a super fun interview, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. If you've ever considered running a course or you have courses already, this is a very, very good interview for you that I think you're going to get a lot of benefit out of. But before we jump into that, if you haven't subscribed already to this podcast, make sure you do so. Just hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this. Or if you're on Spotify, hit the follow button there. That way you never miss another episode. And while you're at it, If you haven't left a review yet, do so. Please leave a review. It really helps us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you if you decide to do that. And also, let me know what you think about this podcast. Uh, Tweet at me or uh, uh, tag me on Instagram. I'm at Mitkoka, M-I-T-K-O-K-A. And let me know what you think about this podcast. Let me know what your favorite episode has been so far, what you enjoy listening to me talk about, or if you have any suggestions on other guests that you'd like uh, meet interview. Let me know on Twitter. Uh, share this podcast as well. Share this episode or send it to a friend that you think might like it. I would really appreciate that. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's jump into this awesome conversation with with Wes Ko. All right, Wes, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. How are you doing? Really good. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm stoked. We were uh, talking before we hit record about the fact that you're in Toronto, but you're from the US. And uh, this is just one of the things that we like to touch on when we get started, because we have so many people coming on the podcast that are like from all over. So what has been, you know, your experience, you kind of called it America light before we started recording. And I get what you mean by that. But can you just tell me like, what has been the biggest adjustment that you've had to make moving from the US to Canada? Like what was the thing that you maybe weren't expecting that you have to adjust for or adjust to, but that, you know, in retrospect, you're like, wow, like, you know, that, that took a little bit. 
Yeah, I think Canada, you know, of all the places that I could have moved to from where I, where I was before, which is California, New York, um, is one of the most similar places to the U.S. So there wasn't much of an adjustment. Um, I think the biggest thing is that there's limited selection of um, of products in Canada, um, especially a lot of retailers in the U.S. Um, don't ship to Canada, or you know, there's no there's no free shipping minimum in the U.S. You're so used to like, oh, buy over fifty dollars, buy over seventy five dollars, you get free shipping. That's probably the biggest adjustment. There's it's it's I know it's super super minor, um, and besides that, there's no Target or Trader Joe's. So actually, last weekend I drove to Buffalo to do a Target haul, and the cart I'm telling you, Miko, was so heavy, it was so loaded that it was actually physically hard to push the cart. It was oh, that heavy. Goodness. It was just it was like piled up high uh, because you know I don't go to Target often, and so Target, Trader Joe's, that's probably that's probably the biggest difference. I think I think you'd get along with my wife very well because like the first place she goes to when they get back into the U.S. is Trader Joe's. Like she is like you know we have like all the Trader Joe's sauces and all that. Like she just loves it. And there's always this like we've been back in the U.S. now for three weeks, I think. Yeah, like exactly three weeks. And uh, it's like everything that we have in the fridge right now is from Trader Joe's because she just goes like hard. You know what I mean? It's like you haven't had something in a really long time, so she just goes heavy on it. Yes. Um, Absolutely. But, but the consumerism part of it is actually like a really like legitimate thing because you don't think about this, but we're in Mexico a lot and you go to the store and like you need, I always notice this for whatever reason with deodorant. You want deodorant and you go to like Mexico, I don't know what it's like in Canada, and they have like three deodorants, right? You go to Target and there's like 30 just for guys. And there's a, there's a bit of like a there, that can be a bit of a pain because you have this decision fatigue, right, of which one is right for me. But also it's really nice because you can get these like really niche products. Uh, like, you know, this specific smell that is like aluminum free and natural, but like whatever. And so there is this like, there is a benefit of being able to come in, get that consumerism, get exactly the products that you want and then leave. But I do think long term, it can kind of become a pain, right? Like you're you don't really need that many choices for a lot of these things. So it's an interesting aspect of, of, of living abroad. Yeah, totally hear that. I mean, I think on a, a normal basis, I have a pretty simple routine driven life. And right. I like that because I can save my creativity for my work and not have to expend that decision-making energy, those chits, you know, not have to spend it towards figuring out, um, you know, what brand of 10 different oatmeals right. are available or deodorant or whatever. So, um, but yeah, it is nice having that burst of being able to see that, that merchandising, that selection, especially as, as a marketer, you know, um, I think business owners, entrepreneurs, marketers, we kind of see the world through a slightly different lens where when you see great products or great merchandising, even if it's outside your category, you know, like I'm in education, but when I see, um, Great, a great deodorant selection. It's kind of like, oh, wow, like that's interesting that this brand is positioning themselves this way. Or, oh, like that packaging is amazing. Like that's something that I haven't mm -hmm. seen before. And that, you know, makes the product look more elevated. Or, you know, I, I notice when chip bags, um, you know, usually they're, they're shiny, right? It's like this shiny foil. And then some mm -hmm. chip bags have that matte, almost like a rubbery finish. Ooh, and it looks yeah. so good. It looks so premium, you know? Right, so you right. notice things like that. You're like, oh, that's cool. Like how can I apply these small... Um, these small aspects to to my business and and you know potentially make a big difference in the way that 
uh, my customer perceives what I'm doing. Yeah. And I also think like, you know, I don't know how you are, but I, I like to listen to a lot of uh, interviews with other founders. And it's always funny when you hear someone on a podcast that then you go to like Target and you see their product and you kind of look at it through a different lens, like you were saying, right? Like I just was doing an interview with uh, the founder of Native, the deodorant brand. This mm-hmm. is not going to be a we podcast got some native. deodorants, <laughs> but you know, it's like now I go there and I'm like, oh, I know why you did the packaging this way. And it's interesting that you also have a body wash and how, you know, you built the brand so that you can mm-hmm. have a bunch the of these extension. different products. Yeah. yeah. Super interesting. But uh, we can talk about Target and Trader Joe's uh, on a, we'll do, we'll do an episode two of this interview, but you're one of the co-founders of Maven, which is a very cool new course platform. Uh, and I think you guys are really redefining what it is to be an educator online. So before we kind of jump into what Maven is and, and, you know, what is different about it and what you do, I want to kind of have some definitions of place in place for listeners, because, um, there's some words here and maybe some terms that, that the folks haven't heard before. So can you tell us, you know, from your point of view, what is a cohort-based course, which is what Maven specializes in? A cohort-based course is a online course with a set start and end date where you're learning with a group, a community of like-minded peers. And there's usually some mix of asynchronous static content plus live interactions. So this is a format that Seth Godin and I created back in 2014, 2015, that my current co-founder, Gagan Biani, and I named Cohort-Based Courses. So it's been awesome seeing the term kind of explode and, and really give shape to this, this category. Um, and basically, Cohort-Based Courses, you know, the reason Seth Godin and I started it is because um, back then, and, and really for the past 10 years, the dominant form of online learning was MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses, M-O-O-C-S. And these are courses that you find on Skillshare, LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, Coursera, where it's basically a bunch of pre-recorded videos. It's static. You do it by yourself. You have to you have to motivate yourself, you know, to to watch these videos. And the completion rates are super low, six to ten percent completion. And a recent MIT study said that that it's actually three to six percent. So you know, single digit completion rates. And and we just thought, you know, this couldn't possibly be the pinnacle of what online education was supposed to be. Um, and, and we thought, you know, what if we did literally the opposite of what a video driven course does, you know, instead of it being solo, what if it were community driven instead of it being, um, super affordable, 10 to $20 per course? What if we made it pricey enough that students felt like there was skin in the game that they actually had to show up and take advantage of this, this course while it lasted. Um, and instead of it being mainly passive content consumption, what if we made it about active hands-on learning and practice and debate and all these interactive elements? So that's really where this idea of core-based courses got started. Um, and, and today you see so many of these different courses that are, that are being taught online by creators, by subject matter experts, by digital nomads, uh, who, are, who are basically uh, getting to share their knowledge online and are making hundreds of thousands of dollars per year flipping open their laptops uh, two to four times a year and teaching teaching online. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you and and Seth Godin sort of came up with this concept or, you know, if you weren't the first person to come up with it, you know, I believe that was the alt MBA, right? That was, that yes. was the, that was that course. That was kind of like the first really big course that at least I know of that functioned in this way. 
Um, and it's been around for for years now. I don't know exactly when it started, but what I'm curious about, I want to kind of dial back on, on the timeline here because folks might be wondering, listening to this, wow, you worked with Seth Godin. You know, that's like one of like the biggest names in marketing. Uh, and I'm sure that you didn't just come out of school or whatever and immediately work with Seth Godin. So can you can you just tell us a little bit about what were you doing before that? Like, how did you end up being in a position to work with someone like Seth Godin to create the Alt-MBA? Yeah. Um, at that time, I had been working for about seven or so years. Um, I'd started my career in corporate retail, working at the Gap headquarters in San Francisco, did a rotational program, uh, rotating through Banana Republic, Old Navy, Gap, learned a lot about the foundations of building a business and, and a business that had been been running for over 40 years at that point with Gap. Um, and then I worked in the beauty industry for a while. So I was in, I was at Bear Essentials, which got acquired by Shiseido, one of the biggest global uh, beauty brands. Uh, and then I made my move into tech. I was at an ad tech startup funded by Sequoia. Um, and at that time I was, I was in SF and uh, I didn't, you know, I had grown up in the Bay Area, went to college in the Bay Area and was ready for something new. And on a whim, I saw that Seth Godin had posted on his blog that he was looking for a special projects lead for a six month stint. And I thought, I want to move to New York. So this is my excuse to move there. I'll do this thing for six months and then I'll, and I'll figure out kind of a full-time thing after that. Uh, so that, that was the impetus that I needed. And uh, I, I tossed my name in the ring, threw in my application. The application was um, filming a, a video, a two to three minute video, talking about what you want to build, what you want to learn, and what you want to contribute. And I thought, well, there are thousands of people applying for this one role. So I'm not going to overthink it because the chances of me getting this are so low that I don't want to get emotionally attached. So I did my video in one take, hit submit, forgot about it, right? Two days later, I get an, an email from Seth Godin himself in my <laughs> inbox. So I'm jumping up and down in my living room, right? Ecstatic about it. Um, and, uh, and, and Seth is saying like, Hey, saw your video, really liked what you talked about. Really love your experience. Um, let's hop on a call for an interview. So we did a couple rounds of Skype interviews. Uh, we met in person for an interview and, and I got the offer. So, you know, a couple weeks later, I'm packing my bags into six suitcases, got an apartment in New York sight unseen in this little town, uh, 40 minutes outside of New York, which is where Seth's office is based. Hastings on Hudson, uh, Hastings on Hudson. And, um, and, uh, originally what was supposed to be the six month stint, um, ended up lasting for, for over three years. Um, and at the tail end of this six months, you know, originally that, that six months was helping Seth figure out what he should do next. So he, at that point had just sold off his last company that he had been running for eight years and was kind of in at a crossroads thinking about, you know, what's my big thing that I really want to double down on. And so, so our initial work was doing a lot of research on a bunch of different areas where he uh, had um, uh, a lot of value to add and had been adding a ton of value. And so, you know, we talked about uh, a bunch of different ideas, ranging from things that that he had already done before, all the way to things that he kind of was excited about, but but you know, kind of pie in the sky idea. So, uh, a noodle shop in um, in in New York City that would be invite only. That would be all about meeting other interesting people or a mobile gaming app 
or um, starting an ad agency that would focus on issues that normally fell into the tragedy of commons, you know, things like climate change and, and, and other issues that kind of, you know, everyone felt like, oh, like someone else is going to handle that. Um, and, and as we narrowed down different ideas, we realized that, that content and teaching was such a core part of who Seth was. And, and uh, so many people around the world had already gotten so much value from, from his teachings. Um, and, and we started diving deeper into this and realized that, you know, people don't read books as often as they used to, right? So, you know, he could write another book, but, but the average American is reading fewer and fewer books per year, but spending more time online, spending more time scrolling, spending more time, you know, uh, on, on digital, on mobile. Um, and so we thought, you know, we could either fight this trend and try to force people to read books, or we could meet people where they're at and we could create, uh, content that was more interesting, more, uh, more interactive, and that's where we came upon the idea of rethinking online courses and creating an online course that was more hands-on, more interactive, more engaging, uh, that, that would help people feel like they were on the hook. Uh, and almost have the intimacy of an in-person event, uh, a small group of people where you're, you're learning together, breathing the same air together, but bringing that online and doing it at scale. So towards that end of that six months, we came up with the idea of the Alt MBA and Seth said, hey, you know, I really want to build this with you. Would you want to stay on and, and help me build this and run this? And, and the answer was an obvious yes. <laughs> so, so that's how the Alt MBA was born. So we have a good number of people listening who are on the younger side, you know, maybe their early 20s. Uh, maybe they're just kind of getting started in a career uh, or, or deciding what to do specifically. And when I got started, it felt like, even though I'm still relatively young, I feel like everybody was telling you, go the corporate route, you know, like do that, do that thing, right? Uh, the online world still wasn't very mainstream. It's not what it is today. Like when I decided to do online business, everybody was like, what are you doing? Why are you throwing your wife life away, et cetera, et cetera. What I want to ask you, and I, and I try to ask this to folks who come on, like you who have that double experience that have been successful in the corporate world. Uh, and who have been successful in the online world as well. What do you think about what someone who's maybe just getting started, what should they do? Should they go to corporate route and get that experience, get those big names behind their name, right? Because that does bring a certain level of credibility. You learn how to work inside of those organizations. Or do you think they should just jump in the pool, be an online creator, create a course if they have some sort of expertise? Uh, what do you think about that? Like, do you think it's more beneficial to just jump into that pool or do you think there is a benefit to going through that corporate world and, and, and getting that experience first? In a sense, all advice is autobiographical. So most people will, will kind of talk from, from their, their own background and experience. So, you know, for me, I did go that corporate route first before going to startups and starting my own company. I think it was valuable seeing how, um, an existing company, uh, an existing brand, uh, a global organization is run. I think one of the challenges of starting your own thing right away is that a lot of times you're the, the only marketer at a company, or you're the only salesperson, or you're the only ops person. So you don't have a lot of people that you can learn from to get a sense of what does excellence look like um, for your craft. So when I first started at Gap, there were hundreds of other people doing the job that I was doing. I was an analyst. Uh, and uh, even on my team, there were you know six, six, five, six other analysts. 
uh, who are more experienced. And I learned so much from seeing the different ways that they tackled essentially the same challenge because each person kind of owned a different uh, a different uh, segment of the department, right? So some person, some some people would own um, knits, some people would own denim, woven sweaters, outerwear, etc. Um, and seeing how different people approached challenges and pushed back to senior leadership and uh, presented their ideas and analyzed their their segment um, was so fascinating. And it gave me a really um, a deep appreciation for craft. You know, I, I think a lot about craft. I think that, that these days um, people kind of want the end result so fast. Like you want a big audience or you want, you know, so many subscribers and you want, you know, a huge email list and you want a big business. You want to make, be making this much per month. And it's, there's such um, a feeling of this rushed, like, like, let me do the, the, the best shortcut to get to this destination. Um, and I feel like sometimes the best way to get to your destination, the fastest way is ironically becoming really good at your craft and understanding um, the ins and out of your craft, you know, not just copying tactics that you see other people do without un- understanding the underlying principle or the underlying psychology or the underlying logic of why something works. So I think when you go to a bigger company, there, there is a little bit more time to, to, uh, see examples of other people, you know, tackling problems in different ways. Um, I think if you go your own route, you can absolutely still learn these things. So I think it really depends on um, where you are in your life. And, and you know, if, you, if there's a burning idea that you want to pursue, go pursue that idea, right? Otherwise, if you, if you join a bigger company, you're going to be thinking about that all the time anyway. So just, just go do that. If you don't have a burning idea and you think you can learn from, from other people um, at, at a company, then, then go do that. I think there's 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 basically multiple ways to get to the same destination, and um, I think not overthinking it and going with with what you feel most excited by. I think that is is very very important. I used to discount this, by the way, the 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 part about um, kind of following what what makes you feel alive, what what makes you feel excited. Um, I was very much like I should do the logical thing, like I should I should do like the thing that is most rational, um, but you know. Humans are not rational creatures. So, you know, when you realize that, you're like, okay, how do I acknowledge that that this thing, there is something about a certain opportunity that is exciting for me. And and I want to tug on that thread, you know? And and if you're excited about something, you're much more likely to do well at it, to give it the, you know, the energy and effort that that it'll warrant. Um, and and you know, approach it with gusto. Yeah, I love that. Um sort of diving a little bit deeper into Maven because people listening might be curious what it actually is and what does it do. Can you give us like the the summary as to why someone would come use Maven? Because a cohort-based course kind of makes sense. Like I'm sure everybody listening kind of gets the idea and can likely do it on their own, right? Like I can likely put together a cohort-based course by myself. So what does Maven actually do? What does it enable creators to do? The reason that we started Maven was because if you are creating a court-based course on your own, which I did for many years uh, before starting Maven, it is a huge headache to cobble together a bunch of different tools to be able to make a course work. So when I was doing the Alt-MBA, when I worked with Professor Scott Galloway at Section 4, the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex Lieberman, Austin Reeve, uh, to create their course, 
uh, we were cobbling together half a dozen or more different tools and using Zapier to connect it all. And I'd spent so many hours staying up trying to figure out how do I adjust this column width? How do I make this Stripe integration work? Because something is not connecting between my landing page software and payments to this portal that we're using that we're driving students to. How do I connect that to the dashboard that I'm using to keep track of who's attending, who's not, who hasn't paid yet? So it was this extremely convoluted process where as a creator, you are spending half of your time on the tech piece, which is usually not why you want to teach a course in the first place. So we wanted to create a one-stop shop where all of that was taken care of. All of the tech, tech, all the logistics, all the administrative pieces of running a complex product like an online course was taken care of. And so because of that, now creators can focus on creating content. They can focus on their curriculum. They can focus on teaching their students and not having, not have to worry about all that backend stuff. Mm. So currently when I, when I go on the Maven website, right. And I'm looking at it, uh, and I look at who some of the people there are like, currently you have a lot of creators on there, but one of the things that I noticed is that a lot of them tend to be pretty big names already, right? Like you have, uh, Sam Parr, Sahil Bloom, uh, uh, you know, I think I saw Pat Flynn on there. So these are already people with sizable audiences. And one of the things that I immediately thought of looking at this is, do you plan to in the future, not only be an enabling software, but also be some version of a marketplace? Because I do see, I think we can draw a parallel with like, kind of like what Upwork has done with, with freelancing, right? Like, yes, it kind of, it makes things easier in terms of billing and that kind of stuff. But it also really, if I can use this term, kind of decentralize the opportunity of freelancing because now people can go to the platform, search for whatever they need and find those people. You don't necessarily need to have a large audience. And you can even say that Udemy did something similar. I mean, I know that on Udemy, it helps to have a large audience, but in many ways, if I need to learn how to fix a problem on my website, I can just search for that on there, find a quick solution for that. So is that kind of the direction in which you're headed in? Because I do know that at the moment when you're looking for instructors, you do focus on instructors who at least have an established audience uh, and, and have, you know, they'll kind of bring people with them uh, to their cohort-based course when they, when they build on Maven. Yeah, absolutely. We're in the middle of making this shift now. So I'm glad that you brought that up. So first, um, even, even before making the shift, um, Maven was already driving students for the instructors on our platform. The reason that we focused on surfacing some of the bigger names is because those are names that are more recognizable. So a lot of people who want to teach know Pomp, they know Sahal Bloom, they know Pat Flynn. Um, and it's, it's inspiring to see, oh, hey, like this person that I admire a lot is teaching courses. Maybe this is something that I can do too. So even now, 80% of our instructors are not big names, maybe, maybe 85. So the bigger names were, were, you know, always a smaller portion. Um, a lot of our instructors do not have an audience or have a small audience. So Shivani Berry, I think is one great example. So Shivani is a course creator, uh, on Maven who, um, a couple of years ago, quit her job as a product manager at um, Intercom. Before that, she was at PayPal and she was an in-house operator. So she didn't have an email list. She wasn't trying to grow her Twitter following or her LinkedIn following. Um, and, you know, she was really starting from scratch when she started working on her course. And so her first cohort had 15 students. A couple of months later, her next cohort had 30 students. 
couple months later, 50, couple months later, 75. And now she's doing over a hundred students per cohort. Um, and so she's a great example of someone who started with no audience and uh, really tapped into existing communities. So places where her students were already hanging out. So her course um, is for is for women uh, who want to advance in leadership and learn management, mainly focused in tech. So she showed up in a lot of women in tech communities. She showed up in, in a lot of uh, communities about professional development. She would do talks, free, you know, 45-minute talks at different companies um, to to share her knowledge. And inevitably, people would be like, oh, wow, like that's really cool. I really learned a lot. How do I get more? Well, you can sign up for Shivani's six-week course, right? So she did a lot um, of tapping into existing communities, which we see we see many uh, successful course creators who don't have a big audience doing. Um, and she also started growing her own audience. So, you know, I think it's it's fine if you don't have an audience, but eventually that does become helpful in terms of sharing your message, being a platform for you to share your ideas. Um, and so she started posting more on social and whatnot too. Um, but yeah, so we so we have a ton of instructors who are who are like Shivani. Um, and then with that shift that I mentioned earlier, uh, we are increasingly shifting more and more into being a marketplace. So Maven already has a ton of traffic coming onto maven.com, scrolling through courses, just like you did when you were scrolling through and seeing like, oh, like, okay, I see this course. I see that one. All right, cool. You know, and we also have a lot of students taking multiple courses on Maven. So someone who is taking a storytelling course is interested in a marketing course and they're interested in a writing course and they're interested in an audience growth course. And so we have a lot of um, cross course taking. Once someone has a great experience on Maven, they are more likely to take another Maven course. Um, and so there's just a lot of um, student uh, student interest kind of congregating on our site. Because uh, right now, if you kind of think about, well, where, where would I go to find core-based courses? There's not there's not kind of a, a go-to place that yeah that you almost need to, to know like the, we are that go-to place yeah you almost need to know that person or follow them on Twitter or whatever and see that they're advertising that right so you already need to have uh, almost like searched out their content and, and that expertise so yeah. Uh, yeah I'm very excited to hear that Maven's going to the marketplace kind of direction because I think that really will enable and open up that opportunity for smaller creators who maybe don't have that that audience yet to to get started. I'm curious, I mean, obviously, you know, you are building an alternative to MOOCs, right? The the massively open uh, online courses. But uh, do you think that those still play a part, an important role in the, uh, like, online education stack, so to say, because I, I do completely understand the benefit of CBCs, right? The cohort-based courses, because, I mean, I've done courses before. I know how, just how small the percentages of people who actually go through those courses, who like take action on it, uh, that's even smaller, right? So I definitely get the the benefit of the CBCs, but do you think there's still a part to play for those MOOCs? Absolutely. I see core-based courses as being another option for learners, for professionals who want to upskill. So sometimes you want a quick YouTube video. Sometimes you want to search for something and, and just be able to read something on, on WikiHow, right? You want quick directions. Sometimes you want to take a, a video-driven course and go through it at your own pace and have that flexibility. Um, and you want to be in, in content, um, uh, passive kind of absorbing mode, right? And then other times you want a community where you can talk about those ideas. You can you can share uh, 
how you're practicing those ideas and get some feedback. You want that discussion. So it really is just another option um, in the, the, the uh, toolkit for, um, for students to be able to reach into and say, you know, hey, like there are some situations where I might want this, some situations where I might want that. I think on the creator side, it's the same. Um, I think creators, uh, you know, are, are already bought into the idea of having a portfolio of offerings, right? So, you know, you might be coaching, you might be doing, you know, one-on-one uh, consulting and implementation. You might be, you know, offering productized offerings like, like road mapping sessions. Um, you might have a menu of offerings that, that your clients can choose from. Um, and you might be selling eBooks or paid webinars or, uh, courses, right? So there's a lot of ways that, uh, or you might offer a mastermind group. So there's so many different ways that as a, a digital nomad, as a creator, as a, as a, an expert, you can monetize your expertise and court-based courses. I see as, as, um, as another element that gets added to that, that adds more flexibility for you. The exciting thing about court-based courses is, uh, it, it's, um, it fits into this two by two matrix that I call the creator monetization matrix. So on the x-axis, you have scale, so low scale to high scale. On the y-axis, you have price point. Are you charging free or, or you know, low price point to high price point? And a lot of creators are over-indexed in one bucket or the other. So you might be um, creating a ton of free content on Twitter, your podcast, your free newsletter, um, but you're not monetizing very well. You know, and then a bunch of other creators are in the opposite bucket where you're uh, you're trading time for money. You're charging a high hourly rate, but your work is limited to a handful of clients. It's locked behind closed doors. So, you know, other people can't see the the brilliant work that you're doing. Um, And so court-based courses are in the upper right quadrant. They're one of the few products there where you can charge a premium price point and you have a really high ROI. um, And it also scales. We have people who teach courses that have 10 to 20 students. And we have people who teach courses that have 100 to 200 and also over a thousand students per cohort. So really you get that premium price point and the ability to scale, whereas previously it's usually a bit of a trade-off. Yeah. One of the things that I like about CBCs is that if you're just getting started, I I think that there's this, uh, people have this, they struggle with this idea of how do I share my knowledge online in order to build that audience? But then how do I package possibly that same information to sell it in a course. And so they hold back on that inf- information they're giving freely and adding that value. And I think CBCs are a very good way to add that in because you can still give your information freely and what you charge for is the structure and you're almost like handholding and being in that community to learn that thing. So even though maybe even a majority of the information is the same, it's you holding them accountable, you pushing them through that and answering their questions that like really is what they're paying for. Uh, so I think that that's very interesting. I want to ask you about CBCs in general when directed to ed- education as a whole. Because post-COVID, a lot of people had, a lot of students had an experience with learning online, right? And some of them had a bad taste in their mouths in some ways. Like I've heard a lot of parents complaining about, you know, my kid hated, you know, being on a Zoom call for like six hours a day and trying to learn. They didn't learn anything. They didn't really socialize. And what I'm always looking forward is like, even though this podcast is called That Remote Life and we're all about business, I'm very much focused on what does the future look like in every way when enabled through the internet? So what do you feel like 
CBCs can do in terms of education? Like, do you see this being something that schools can start to use to to teach certain lessons to make schooling and education in general a bit more remote friendly? Yeah, I mean, if we take a step back and look at education as a whole, classroom education, in-person education, back, you know, all the way back to the days of of Socrates, you know, teaching in in, in the town square um, was cohort-based. It was live. It was with a group of people who, you know, wanted to discuss and debate and learn together. The, you know, the thing that a lot of people say is, well, you know, aren't CBCs basically, you know, what, what school was before in person, right? Um, and in some ways it is, except it's, it's bringing that online. So it's kind of taking the best parts of the internet and the scale that the internet offers, plus the magic that happens when people get together in person and learn together and bringing that together online. So when you think about, you know, the COVID experiences that, you know, elementary school students might've had, um, that was cohort-based, you know? Um, I think that there's, there's certain limitations and certain opportunities. So I would say that, that asking um, a six-year-old to, to sit in front of Zoom for hours on end is, is not going to work. Like no matter, you know, how, um, how engaging those lessons might be. And, and, you know, I'm sure all the, all the teachers were trying as hard as they could, um, given the circumstances, um, you know, with, with Maven, we focus on professional learners, professional development, knowledge workers who, you know, are business owners or, um, you know, operators in house and they're learning on their own free will, right? They're not, you know, it's, it's not mandatory that you need to, to show up, you know, in seventh grade or whatever, um, you are trying to improve your skills as, as a, as a, as a professional. So I think that situation, um, it makes it easier in many ways for court-based courses to, to work because, uh, adults have, you know, different attention spans and, um, you know, are there because they, they want to improve themselves. So there's kind of that voluntary element to it. Um, I think the other thing though, that, that comes out of this, this burgeoning of court-based courses as, as a trend that might apply to in-person learning, kind of inspiration going, you know, back and forth is that traditionally learning, you know, whether it was in a classroom or, or online was one directional. So it was the sage on stage model where you have the teacher or the professor or the lecturer basically talking at you. And then you had everyone else sitting quietly, um, obediently listening. And I think the difference with court-based courses in, in the way that they exist now is there's a, a bi-directional, um, element, right? It's, it's bi-directional. It's, it's instructors teaching, but students teaching the instructor back many times and also students teaching each other. So it's a, it's a much more, um, robust and rich experience, um, which, which is much more mentally engaging. And, and I think that that is, um, could be good inspiration for, you know, for more traditional classroom education. Uh, because, you know, I, I would say that, that professors are, are one of the few, um, content creators, you, you could call them, where um, they have a captive audience that is locked, you know, chained to their desks, basically, right? Because if you if you don't show up to class or if you just leave partway through, you know, I'm going to mark you that you weren't here or you didn't you didn't participate or you know you didn't you didn't attend class. Uh, you know, I'm, you're not going to be able to pass. You might not be able to graduate. So there's a, if you think about carrots and sticks with motivation, there's a lot of sticks, right? There's a lot of punishment driven behavior, whereas with with um, court-based courses geared towards working professionals, you don't have those sticks as an instructor. Like 
your your students could just leave because they're, you know, a 30 something year old marketer and like they don't have to show up. Right. And so in many ways, it encourages you to think more about making it an engaging experience that makes the person want to come um, and want to attend out of their own out of their own volition. So I think that kind of lifts kind of as a, as a riding tide lifting all boats like that makes all education better when when the instructor also thinks about, well, what's my responsibility in um, in helping my students stay awake, stay engaged um, and really want to show up. So when you talk about bi-directional learning in CBCs and, and through Maven, is that does that come about because that is your like it's something that you talk about, it's something that you stress that your uh, you know, course creators, your educators have? Or is there something technologically that you inside of Maven have built out that enables that or in some way promotes it? Uh, I don't know if that if that question makes sense, but like how do you how do you encourage that by bi-directional learning? Yeah. So I teach a three-week course called the Maven Course Accelerator that we have all new instructors coming on to Maven go through. It's a free course. And basically, we teach you everything that you need to know to build a core-based course end-to-end. And one of the, the biggest things that we teach in, in, in the MCA is something called the state change method. So the state change method is, uh, is the idea that every three to five minutes or so, you are interrupting your own monologue with a state change of some sort to keep audiences engaged and awake. So it's the opposite of a monologue. Monologue is one person talking for, you know, 90 minutes on end, right? With the state change method, it's, you you know, punctuating that lecture with, you know, asking your students to chime something into the chat box, um, to switch speakers, uh, to add some variety. It's going from the Zoom uh, screen share to gallery view where you can kind of see everyone's faces and kind of switch away from slides for a while. It's um, going into a breakout room where for 10 minutes, your students can um, can work on and practice the thing that you just taught them. It's doing a guided exercise where, you know, maybe, maybe a writing instructor um, uh, teaches about writing great uh, Twitter hooks, the first, the first tweet uh, in, a, in a tweet thread and says, all right, I'm going to put my timer for three minutes. For the next three minutes, we're all going to jot down um, three versions of a great tweet, tweet hook and then paste your best one into chat when you're done, right? So that interactivity is really built into, uh, into the course experience. That's something that we teach instructors. You can definitely do a course without that. You can, you can have it be one directional, but the problem is that it can then feel a bit like, um, like a video driven course, right? If you're, if you're kind of just talking at people, why wouldn't you just package that up and make it easier for yourself and your students um, by, by making a video course. So your students are there because they want that interactivity. Um, and the interactivity doesn't need to always be with the instructor. It can be with fellow students, right? The alt MBA, Seth, Seth Godin himself never showed up to the course, right? It was entirely group driven, entirely project driven. So it was all the students that we curated together interacting with each other. And we gave that structure and that space. And so the Maven software enables that and encourages students to do that. We have a community feature. We have, um, we have a bunch of different features that allow students to discuss, to share their work, to submit projects, and we make that process a lot easier. So 
you know, you mentioned like the carrots and sticks, right? And that if you don't show up to your college class, you're going to have your, your great doctor or whatever it may be. And I totally agree with the negatives of that. But one of the things that I think college education has, has sort of figured out or mainstream education, if I can call it that, has kind of figured out is this idea of, of a, of a proof of knowledge, right? So if I go apply for a job, I can say I have a degree from X university and that gives me some sort of uh, statement that I know what I'm talking about, that I deserve this job, that I have this knowledge. And one of the things that I feel like is lacking on the online education side is exactly that, right? If I go and I apply for a job and I say, I took this course on Udemy or I took this cohort-based course on, on Maven, they're kind of going to, you know, like, what is this, right? Like, I don't know if this counts, uh, unless you have some very forward-thinking uh, hiring person who I don't think they're quite there yet. So what needs to happen in the online education world? Or is it more education for, for people hiring and for the corporate route? Like, how do we make online education that in many ways, many times can be way more beneficial than a college education matter as much when going to get a job? I think college still plays a huge role in terms of offering the credential that that opens doors, right? There's still many jobs that say, you know, four-year degree required. Although that's now getting lifted from from you know uh, from a bunch of different companies. Um, I think I think the difference, um, you know, now that more learning is happening online, more, now that more people are building in public, one of the best. Um, uh, things that have come out of that is that you can now show your proof of work online. So instead of presenting a credential saying, here's my four-year degree in marketing uh, or in advertising, whatever, I can now show my Instagram feed of a bunch of ads that I've created. I can now point you to my Twitter where I've been tweeting about marketing for X number of years. I can, right? So it's it's people being able to show their work um, the same way that designers were able to show, show portfolios, now uh, if you are are you know working professional, there's so many different ways that you can show your thinking and your work online. And I think a lot of employers would rather um, would rather see proof of work that is actually even closer to what that person would be doing if they got hired than whatever they learned in their you know business degree, right? And so being able to send someone links to uh, long form articles that you've written, analyzing your industry, sending someone links to microsites that you've built, sending someone to your Shopify page to show that you built a, a thriving Shopify business. Those are all more interesting for me as a, as a employer wanting to look for sharp, motivated, eager uh, operators than someone saying, oh, but look, like I have a business degree. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I've said this multiple times on the podcast and I don't know if someone's taken me up on it yet. If someone has and is listening to this, please let me know. Shoot me an email because I'd love to hear about it. But I think like podcasts are one of the best resumes ever because if you want to go and get a marketing job, start a podcast. It doesn't have to run for forever, but do 20 episodes or interviews with like really great marketers that you enjoy. And not only are you going to have something that you can send to whoever you want to get hired with and say like, hey, look at what the conversations that I've had. Look at, you know, you can hear my thoughts on it. But also some of those people might enjoy the conversation and hire you themselves, right? So I think it's such a great way. And I think it's massively underutilized. Like if I was going out there looking for jobs right now, I would a thousand percent start a podcast and whatever that field is and then send it to everyone that I want to get hired with uh, or even interview them. Uh, I, I love this idea. I hope some people take you up on it. Yeah, I mean, I 
it's if you have and you're listening to this, please let me know because that'd be so exciting. Uh, but I want to zoom out a little bit uh, because I noticed when I was doing the research for this podcast, I noticed that you spent some time maybe after the alt MBA and, you know, before you started Maven, like actually creating content yourself. Like you have some really great articles out there. You've been very active on social media and I'm curious about your, and I kind of heard you talk about this with my friend Jay Klaus on his podcast, Creative Elements, about this distinction between being a creator and being an operator, right? And, and having like an organization, because this is something, this is kind of a personal question. See, when you have a podcast, you can ask personal questions but, or personally beneficial questions. But this is something that I struggle with, where on one side, there's a lot of this benefit of being a, a solo creator. Maybe you have a, maybe you have like a freelancer or two that works with you. Uh, and that seems really great. You can still have a very profitable business that way. But then there's this other side, which is having an organization like you have at Maven, right? And it's a completely different experience, but it has some benefits. So how do you think about that? Like if somebody's listening to this, who's trying to decide between those two or the interviewing, the interviewer is trying to decide between those two, how should you think about that? Like, like how can you decide which one is right for you? I think the lines between uh, creator creator dash something is blurry. So you know, before people called themselves creators if they were a full time YouTuber or if they were an Instagram influencer, and now I think that that definition is, is broadening. So you have creator dash operators. You know, you have creator dash uh, influencers. You have you know creator writers, whatever, like creator business owners. So more and more people are, I think, realizing that sharing your knowledge online um, is a great way to uh, to grow your brand, promote your business, meet a like-minded group of community, you know, like-minded community. Um, I think the, the, the thing that I struggle with as someone who's in that creator, creator slash um, operator bucket is creating content and solving challenges in my business are two different parts of my brain. So I actually write a lot on a daily basis. Um, I write a ton in Slack when I'm giving feedback to my team, when I'm putting together a strategy proposal outlining, here's why we should move the business in this direction. Um, I'm writing a ton, you know, uh, internally, basically, right? That is different for me than it is writing public facing content that's meant to, to educate my audience on marketing or leadership or courses or whatever. I think some people find it easier. So, you know, there's a, there's, um, there's a great story that I love, um, about Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen as two very different styles of creators. And I think that most people fall into one camp or the other. So, so Bob Dylan and, and, uh, and, Leonard Cohen met at a cafe, I think in, in the late eighties, both of them were, were, you know, super famous by that point, sold millions of records. And, um, Bob Dylan says to Leonard Cohen, um, oh, I loved your song, Hallelujah. Um, how long did it take you to write? And Leonard Cohen says, um, about two years. And Bob Dylan was like, oh, wow, you know, that's a really long time. And so Leonard's like, oh, well, you know, I loved one of your songs. Um, how long did that, that one take you to write? And Bob Dylan says, 15 minutes. <laughs> and to add insult to injury, Leonard Cohen says, okay, I actually lied. It took me five years to write Hallelujah, <laughs> not two years. So you have creators who you know, are creating songs and hit songs in 15 minutes, and you have creators creating it in five hours. So I'm definitely in that Leonard Cohen bucket mm. where it, 
I'm not, you know, I'm not a natural sharer is, is how I like to describe it. Right. And I actually feel like, like that's encouraging for a lot of people because, you know, when I was starting out, I felt like a lot of advice that I read was written by people who were natural sharers, people who could just hit publish without overthinking, who were, you know, tweeting five times a day, they would have a thought and they would tweet about it. Like, and then here I was like editing my tweet, thinking about it. And then like, no, I shouldn't. Oh, I should just wait until tomorrow. Finally tweeting it and then deleting it five seconds later because I wanted to change around the way, you know, two words in that tweet and then retweet it. Like, so that, that overthinking I think is um, really, really common in some of the best experts and some of the best creators are, you know, in, you know, kind of overthinkers. Um, And in this age of the internet, like how do you share widely online if you are an overthinker, you know? Um, So, so I think that that's, that's something that I grapple with. Um, uh, That story with Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, I think is, is super encouraging because I had no idea that Leonard Cohen was, was also, you know, kind of, kind of an overthinker. Um, I think that my, my takeaway from all this is that um, you really have to work with your personality. Don't fight your personality. I spent many years lamenting, you know, oh, I wish I were more of a natural share. I wish I were more extroverted. I have so many of the creators that I know, you know, are in that bucket. Um, and and you can't really solve or fix your personality. Like you are how you are, you know? And so when I learned to work around my overthinking as, as a, you know, as a constraint versus a problem to be solved, that's when my content really took off. And so mm-hmm. most of my growth um, on, on Twitter, at least, was all in the last year. You know, I had like a thousand followers for, I don't know, nine, my first nine years on Twitter. I, I don't know, I created an account years ago, right? And and just like never could get myself to tweet enough to actually make it a habit. Um, and all of my growth has been uh, in the last year or so um, when I really embraced my style instead of trying to fight it. Yeah, and I think there's like pros and cons to both, right? Like I'm more in the other camp, not comparing to I'm myself so jealous. to Bob Dylan, but like <laughs> I have more of this like fuck it personality where I'm like, oh, ah, that, that's fine. That. And like, you know, I'll tweet out like anything and everything. And the, the negative of that is like, not everything's great, right? Like some of the things like are not good, but I have this like uh, like thought of like qual- uh, quantity eventually breeds quality, right? Like just swing the bat enough times and eventually you're gonna learn how to like hit the ball. So uh, and but I totally agree is like, you know, the benefit for you is that you might not create content as often, but it's really, really good, right? Like I think about like, wait, but why? I think their whole thing is like we publish like sometimes, but when they do publish, like, damn, is it good, right? It's it's a very, very good, very good content. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're kind of uh, running short on time here, but uh, I have to ask you in wrapping up, I was speaking with Rob Lennon on Twitter, who I know is another Maven employee, uh, and he and he kind of told me, he gave me this little tip. So he said, uh, you absolutely have to ask Wes about her uh, ideas and, and perspectives on career paths for super ICs, which he called super individual contributors rather than pushing people who are amazing at execution into management positions. So I'm very curious about this. I don't really know what he's talking about, to be honest. It sounds like really big words that I don't understand that well. But can you tell us a little bit about that? Because the fact that Rob was like, you have to ask her this uh, really piqued my curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. First, I love Rob. He's amazing. Uh, We worked together 11 years ago at a different company in SF. And I recruited him to come join Maven because I... uh, I, I thought he was he was fantastic um, uh, of a colleague. So um, yeah, love that love that he he mentioned that. So um, yes, so the way that most um, 
career ladders happen is that you're, you start as an individual contributor. Um, and then as you rise up in your career, you become a manager. Mm. Um, and so that's a pretty big shift going from, from IC individual contributor to manager. Um, and it, I imagine it's a little bit like going from a, a teacher to a principal, right? right. The, the skill sets are just very, very different. And, um, in engineering, there is an alternate career path that if you are a great engineer, sometimes you become an engineering manager or an engineering director or VP, but other times you stay an engineer and you get paid more, but you stay an individual contributor. You stay doing your craft instead of managing people who do the craft. Uh, so there's this idea of this 10x engineer um, where you know there, there are these super ICs that, um, that are so good at what they do um, but they don't manage people. Well, because like in engineering, that's such a high leverage like position, right? Like a really great engineer can create Bitcoin in the same amount of time that somebody takes, like makes crap, right? Exactly. Yes. And I think that can apply to the business side as well. So mm. a really great marketer, there are 10x marketers, there are 10x salespeople, right? Like why take someone who's an amazing salesperson that you put them in front of anyone, they could they can close that sale. Why turn them into a sales manager where they're no longer meeting with, 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 you know, prospects and they're right. just, they're managing a sales team, right? Why take a marketer who's an amazing copywriter, who's amazing at positioning, who is super creative and can kind of take things from zero to one. Why take them out of that element and make them manage a team where they're no mm -hmm. longer like doing their craft, right? So this is the idea of the, the super IC that, that I'm, um, that I'm really excited about that I think um, in the business world right now, it doesn't really exist, right? It's it's still like, you know, as you advance, the way to advance and to to gain more prestige, to to make more money, to rise up the career ladder is to become a manager and then, you know, and, you know, manage increasingly more people, have an increasingly bigger org under you. Um, and I think that that is too limiting of a way to look at um, how really sharp people can add value within your company. Yeah, I feel like the idea there is that if you're a very good marketer, being put to oversee other marketers will allow you to actually have more leverage because you can then put your bit of magical marketing onto everyone else's work. But the issue is that your main job is to manage, not necessarily to create. And so maybe finding people who are ICs managers, because I'm sure that those people exist, that then just need to like learn marketing and to kind of like just push the marketers to be better in that way or, or manage that could be a, a better way of, of structuring that. So that's very, very interesting. Uh, Wes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been uh, super fun. Uh, thank you for giving us your time. Um, I know it's very, very valuable. Let people know if they're interested in following you. I know you mentioned you're active on Twitter. Uh, if they want to learn more about Maven, where can they find out more about that? Yeah, we're at, at Maven HQ and maven.com. And I'm at Wes underscore KO and WesKO.com. Perfect. Well, Wes, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to uh, seeing Maven grow and everything else that you guys are going to do. Thanks, Miko.